Hello everyone, welcome to Christ is the Cure. I am Paul. I am extremely nasal today because I have extreme allergies. I'm going to be your host for this week's episode. Uh, and this episode is going to be about repentance. The subject alone is worth several books or a lengthy podcast series, but we're going to try to do this in under an hour. There are few things more important than a correct understanding of repentance. It has a direct effect on one's eternal destiny, on how we see the person and work of Christ, how we behave with other Christians, and how we live in this fallen world. So we're going to do a small survey of repentance in church history, and then we're going to spend a little time on the subject of repentance of repentance itself. So we, we are going to begin, of course, with the pre-Reformation era. It's going to be split in pre-Reformation, Reformation, and post-Reformation. So pre-Reformation is everything before the Reformation. I don't see the Reformation as a central point in church history, by the way, just to make that clear. So the early church is always tricky when it comes to soteriology. Uh, A sound and comprehensive theology of grace was lacking because of an incomplete New Testament canon, mostly. Uh, This fact is mentioned in my episode 12 of my podcast, Peals of Thunder, which is on, on a big hiatus, big pause. Uh, on the church history series there. The earliest successors to the apostles did not have a compiled version of New Testament books, so it took a while for them to get that together, for the early church, I mean. And the ones that were most widely available were the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, John was written later, so it took a little bit longer for that one to, to join the others. So it's only natural that if anyone... If anyone only reads one of the Synoptic Gospels to end up with an unbalanced view of what repentance leads to, and that is salvation. And it would also lead to an unbalanced concept of grace, concluding with an emphasis on works as a condition for salvation, which was widely accepted in in the early church. There are several guys running around in the knowledgeable and scholarly world of Instagram who refer to the Apostle Paul as a heretic. And as the one who introduced the concept of, of salvation by grace through faith. And they claim that what Paul brought up was a novelty that doesn't find its origins in the, in the teachings of Jesus or the rest of the New Testament that isn't Pauline. What they end up with is a works-based salvation, where repentance is, if, is some sort of penance, a cleansing act one must do to partly atone for oneself and redeem his acts. Because of that slanted emphasis due to their limited canon, some of the early church, by the way, I'm not saying that the early church rejected Paul's Paul's books and letters as authoritative. I'm only saying that some people on Instagram and the vast majority of social media do. So because of the early church, uh, the early church's limited canon, they had a slanted view of grace and repentance. That's why some of them, most of them, held to a system of work salvation. Um, there's a work titled The Doctrine of Grace and the Apostolic Fathers, written by Th- Thomas Torrance, and he writes, and I quote, Salvation is wrought, they thought, referring to the early church fathers, certainly by divine pardon, but on the ground of repentance, which would be self-amendment before God. 
not apparently on the ground of the death of Christ alone. There is no doubt about the fact that the early church felt it was willing to go all the way to martyrdom, but it felt that it was in that way the Christian made saving appropriation of the cross, rather than by faith. It was not seen that the whole of salvation is centered in the person and death of Christ. Failure to apprehend the meaning of the cross and to make it a saving article of faith is surely the clearest indication that a genuine doctrine of grace is absent. Close quote. Of course, I, I partly agree here, but we cannot make a blanket statement about the whole early church that a doctrine of grace was absent. That would mean that no one was saved in the early church. So doubtless, the close companions of the apostles and the churches of Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, and Rome had a sound knowledge of soteriology, because of the letters of Paul, of course. And that became somewhat eroded by time and affected by the culture in later decades and centuries. But for sure, grace wasn't absent, as Torrance seems to declare. So we're going to note three major aspects of how repentance was understood regarding salvation, especially concerning its connection to baptism. The early church and the apostolic church correctly understood baptism as the initiatory rite of the Christian life. Baptism was and is intrinsically related to repentance, faith, and salvation. So it isn't wrong to believe that salvation begins at baptism. It is only in our modern era that repentance, faith, baptism, and the giving of the Spirit are events that became chronologically separated. This wasn't so in the early church, although it did become as the centuries passed. There is one baptism-related problem that the early church fell into, and that is related to repentance. Some of the earliest literature from the church mentioning repentance are actually quite sound. For example, the Shepherd of Hermas says, and I quote, Repentance is great wisdom, for he who has sinned understands that he acted wickedly in the sight of the Lord. He remembers the actions he has done, and he repents. He no longer acts wickedly, but he does good generously. He humbles and torments his soul because he has sinned. Close quote. That last bit can sound a little bit masochistic, but it refers to contrition and a true heartfelt acknowledgement of the sinful action. A little bit later in church history, Clement of Alexandria seems to place some stipulations for repentance when he says, and I quote, For to sin is natural and common to all, but to return to God, after sinning, is characteristic not of any man, but only of men of worth. Close quote. He also said, referring to a repentant person, that he must believe that salvation belongs to the one who lives according to the commandments. There are several ways to interpret that, but I cannot get into that now. We can also see him make a natural connection to baptism when he says, and this is Clement of Alexandria also, In the same way, therefore, we also repent of our sins, renounce our iniquities, and are purified by baptism. Thereby, we, need, we speed back to the eternal light as children of the Father. Close quote. Tertullian, the great theologian from Carthage, said it perfectly, and I quote, In Greek, the root meaning of repentance is not the, conf the confession of a sin, but a change of mind. Close quote. Also, the great Origen, who was sadly a heretic, correctly thought about repentance connected to baptism when he said, Matthew alone adds the words, to repentance, 
teaching us that the benefit of baptism is connected with the intention of the baptized person. To him who repents, it is saving. However, to him who, be, who, who comes to it without repentance, it will produce greater condemnation. Close quote. In the 4th century, Lactantius said, In that circumcision of the heart, he has said before us repentance. If we lay open our hearts, that is, if we confess our sins and make satisfaction to God, we will obtain pardon. Such pardon is denied to those who are obstinate and conceal their faults. And he also said, To repent is nothing else than to profess and to affirm that one will sin no more. Close quote. If these words by Lactantius were true, we would all be disqualified from being Christians. If what he means here is that we turn away from sin and not desire to commit sin again, that is fine and also biblical. But that can quickly become a slippery slide into sinless perfectionism or into a massive burden that no one can carry. The big problem with the early church's understanding of repentance is brought to light with these words from Clement of Alexandria. And I quote, The sins committed before faith are accordingly forgiven by the Lord, not that they may be undone, but as if they had not been done. Close quote. The early church, and this is the issue, the early church began to believe that sins, sins, were washed away at baptism. Some specific sins that a Christian could commit after baptism cannot be forgiven. And that is what happens with a poorly developed theology of God's grace, and we cannot blame them for that. Some fathers believed that the Christian began with a clean slate, but we all know that that won't last for long, so they had to develop something to atone for post-baptismal sins, and that something is what we came to know as penance. This, of course, led to unorthodox practices, like getting baptized in one's deathbed to be sure no, no grave sin is committed after baptism where no penance could be done. That was the case, for example, with Constantine the Great, who waited until before death to be baptized. The proposal to deal with the sins after the initial repentance that was tied to baptism was coined by most of the Church Fathers as penance, or works of penance. The way to fix post-baptismal sins, if they could be forgiven at all, which was a debate in itself, was through works of penance. There was even disagreement as to how many times a person could repent after baptism. For example, Hermas, who was a writer of early non-canonical letters and some apocalyptic literature, Hermas said that a Christian could only repent once after baptism. And I will give you the citation. And therefore I say to you that if anyone is tempted by the devil, and he sins after that great and holy calling in which the Lord has called his people to everlasting life, he has opportunity to repent but once. But if he should sin frequently after this, and then repent, to such a man his repentance will be of no avail. Clement of Alexandria was also in basic agreement with Hermas, or in apparent agreement, when he wrote, Being very merciful, God has promised a second repentance for those who fall into some transgression, yet remain in the faith. In that manner, if anyone is tempted after his calling and is overcome by force and fraud, he may still receive repentance but he must not turn away from that repentance. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. But continual and successive repentance of sins does not differ at all from the case of those who have not believed at all.
close quote. For all his theological soundness, we also have Tertullian, who seems to have fallen into the same pattern of thinking when he says, Repentance is the price for which the Lord has, a, has determined to award pardon. Sellers first examine the coin with which they make their bargains to see if it is cut, scraped, or counterfeit. Likewise, we believe that the Lord, when about to grant us such costly merchandise, which is eternal life, first tests our repentance. Close quote. Thankfully, though, most of the fathers believed that a Christian could repent many times and still be a true believer. But it was never specified just how many times one could repent. To understand a little bit more where these early church fathers were coming from, we have to consider that they were zealous to protect the church from fake believers who would go on sinning and then pretend to repent as many times as they wished. And we know that even the Apostle Paul condemns that. We could come to the conclusion here that the early church fathers almost unanimously believed that repentance could happen an unlimited number of times, but always as contrition and confession were present in that repentance. And it would always be followed by doing works of penance. These differed in their length and severity, though. Uh, so having considered this, it's still erroneous to conclude that the early church had no grasp of grace or justification by faith. Whoever says that about the early church or the, me, the medieval pre-Reformation church, have, whoever says that has little idea of what they're talking about. Contrary to popular opinion, the church did not die in the 2nd century and then revived in the 16th century or Reformation. The lack of balance that led many to several forms of legalism was there, though. It did exist, but it did not hold the church with an iron fist, as it's commonly believed. So before we move on to the Reformation understanding of repentance, let's see this final quotation from Lactantius, who was the advisor, theological advisor to Constantine the Great. It's about the basic belief that stood throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, let's see the quote. Let no one be disheartened. Let no one despair concerning himself if he has turned aside to the way of unrighteousness because he, ha he, has, he was overcome by passion, sorry. Impelled by desire, deceived by error, or compelled by force. For it is possible for such a one to be brought back and to be set free. It is possible if he repents of his actions and makes satisfaction to God, turning to better things. That was a quote. Uh, that also could be interpreted in several ways, but I'll just leave that there. Let me just say this. I'm kind of double-minded on this issue. When he says turning to better things, Lactantius here could very well be making a parallel declaration to making satisfaction to God. So if that's what he meant, turn to better things, as in change your life, change your attitude, uh, yeah, that, that could be referred to as repentance and making satisfaction to God. But uh, the system of penance was still developed. And up until the Reformation that ruled the church, so let's see now the Reformation errors take on on repentance. So we all know that Reformation theology marked a deep break with the previous understanding of repentance and all, all things soteriology. So of course, starting with Luther, uh, 
This might sound confusing to some of y'all, but Luther was basically three theologians during his life uh, as a theologian. He changed a lot. He was not someone we can deem as significantly consistent, but he, he remains a major figure in historical theology. So uh, Luther leaned towards the belief that past, present, and future sins are done away with at the moment of salvific repentance. And we should expect that. He was the quote-unquote, the first reformer. That's it, It's a wrong historical statement, but it's still what is accepted as most uh, popularly true. I hate to make comments like that, I'm sorry. Calvin, on the other side, I mean, on the same side, they basically agreed on this. Calvin always believed that past, present, and future sins were done away with. And I only want to make a small contrast here between Luther and Calvin because Luther remained with the with the Roman conviction of sacramentalism. And the problem here is that the doctrine that is most readily associated with Luther, which would be that of sola fide or justification by faith alone, that's inconsistent within uh, Luther's theology. Because if, if the sacraments, which in this case would be baptism, uh, most clearly aligned with his thoughts on justification. If, if the sacraments are the means of justification, the idea of faith alone as the means of justification crumbles. You can't have both. But anyway, we, we don't really have the time or the context to discuss that any further here. It only bears to say that Luther mostly agreed uh, that repentance for salvation without baptism happens once. But that becomes really, really complicated in the mystery that is Lutheran theology. Anyway, uh, that Reformation principle, that repentance unlinked to sacramentalism, broke the chains off of the Roman Church from the Gospel. And not only from the issue of sacramentalism, but also from the works of penance in regard to that restoration after sin. It bears to say that in Rome... Uh, works of penance are a form of sacrament. So there, there really is no, no difference for them there. This, this break from, from Rome by the Reformation brought massive freedom in Reformed churches, which of course led to growth in members. So what about Reformation theology and the practice of penance after conversion? Calvin firmly and completely rejected it based on the sufficient atonement of Christ and Luther himself said that, and I quote, penance tortures poor consciences to death, close quote. I heartily agree with Luther, with Luther there. In spite of that, Luther did hold to some form of penance, although I can't call it Roman Catholic penance. It should be described more as something, something that, that leans toward bearing fruit in the context in the context of good works, which is totally valid and biblical. So uh, another catalyst of the huge change here is the translation of the Greek word metanoia. The ancient Latin translations of scripture, which were the official versions used by the church in the then vernacular language, use the term penitentium, which means to do acts of penance. And the Greek word metanoia can be defined as change of mind or change in the inner man. And we see the, the difference here. It's massive. The definitions in the Latin and the Greek are clearly not the same. One is external and can be 
It can be brought about independent from an inner disposition, while the other one has the correct order of a changed heart, a changed inner man, and then leading to good and faithful actions. If we see this in practical terms, any false religion has valid acts of penance. But that does not mean that the practitioner of that false religion has what the Bible defines as a new heart or a repentant, a repentant heart, a repentant person. Or as the word uh, in Greek says, a change of the inner man. According to Reformation theology, repentance was based on a change of mind that led to the individual that led the individual to a recognition of personal sinfulness and the need of forgiveness that can only be fulfilled in Christ. As we have seen, Luther mostly agreed with this, but his views on baptism made him conclude that salvation can be forfeited and lost, which is a point I'm in strong disagreement with. Uh, but anyway, I, I have to digress from, from Luther. So let's finish this bit on the Reformation with some quotes from Calvin and other reformers. And this little excerpt is from the Institutes, uh, chapter 3, section 3, verse 5. I, I think that's a correct order. It's 3.3.5. Uh, I quote, Indeed, I am aware of the fact that the, whole that the whole of conversion to God is understood under the term repentance, and faith is not the least part of conversion. But in what sense this is so, this is so will very readily appear when its force and nature are explained. The Hebrew word of repentance is derived from conversion or return, the Greek word from change of mind or of intention. And the thing itself corresponds closely to the etymology of both words. The meaning is that, departing from ourselves, we turn to God, and having taken off our former mind, we put on a new one. On this account, in my judgment, repentance can be repentance can thus be well defined. It is the true turning of our life to God, a turning that arises from a pure and an earnest fear of Him. And it consists in the modification of our flesh and of the old man, and in the vivification of the spirit. Close quote. That was kind of hard to read at times. So, uh, let's see this small, tiny quote from Ulrich Swingli. And here we can see how the institutionalized form of Roman Catholic repentance negatively affected his own views on repentance. And I quote, This is also clear that not repentance, but hope in Christ washes away sin, and that repentance is the being on guard, lest you fall back into the ways you have condemned. Close quote. There we see on, on Zwingli uh, a, a stark, strong separation of repentance from hope or faith. Uh, and he only sees repentance here as somewhat a, a fence to guard you from falling again into condemnation it's a strange quote uh i'm i'm not i'm not very familiar with zwingli's writings so i'll just leave that there let's see this last quotation from luther which is very accurate it's a very accurate definition of of repentance the greek word metanoiete itself means repent and could be translated more exactly by the latin transmentamini transmentamini that sounds better. Which means assume another mind and feeling, recover one's senses, make transition from one state of mind to another, have a change of spirit. 
so that those who hitherto have been aware of earthly matters may now know the spiritual, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12.2, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By this recovery of one's senses, it happens that the inner that the sinner, sorry, has a change of heart and hates his sin. Close quote. So I'm, I'm no particular fan of Luther, but I must admit that that is a masterful way of explaining repentance. So as, as we said before, the Reformation broke away from Rome's understanding of repentance. And we could partly blame the 4th century theologian slash scribe slash preacher Jerome who wrongly translated metanoia into penance in the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible. So let's move now to post-Reformation era, and this is going to, some sparks are, are going to fly here, because we're going to have to touch on Lordship Salvation. So uh, the centuries after the Reformation have seen how Rome has strengthened its erroneous understanding of repentance by setting their declarations in stone, at the Council of Trent, uh, that's in 1546, by the way, which says, As a means of regaining grace and justice, penance was at all times necessary for those who had defiled their souls with any mortal sin. Before the coming of Christ, penance was not a sacrament, nor is it since his coming a sacrament for those who are not baptized. But the, but the Lord then principally instituted the sacrament of penance when, being raised from the dead, he breathed upon his disciples, saying, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, who since you shall forgive, they are forgiven them, and whose since you shall retain, they are retained. That is John 20, verses 22 and 23. By which actions so signal and words so clear, the consent of all the fathers has never understood the power of forgiving and retaining sins was communicated to the apostles and to, the, and to their lawful successors for the reconciling of the faithful who have fallen after baptism. Close quote. So we could strongly argue that Rome is nothing like they were back in the 16th century, especially now, and especially under woke and hip Pope Francis. But that's not the point. The point is that Rome has never rescinded their understanding of repentance. And we can see that clearly in the Council of Trent, in that declaration. That penance has always been a thing, except uh, before Christ arrived, and only after he rose and told that to the disciples, that whoever they, they hold their sins against, they won't be forgiven, and whoever they, they, they forgive, uh, they shall be forgiven. Of course, that's a horrible understanding that understanding totally ignores every single parallel of that verse in the Synoptic Gospels. The correct way to understand that is that the disciples have the message which can forgive or retain sins. If they preach the gospel to someone and they don't accept it, and they don't repent, of course their sins will be held against them. They are not forgiven. And if they believe and embrace the forgiveness found in the gospel through the mouth of the apostles, then they are forgiven. It does not mean that the apostles and their lawful successors, as the Council of Trent says, have the authority to forgive anyone or retain anyone's sins. Anyway, um, in Protestantism, on the other hand, we can see as many as three different views of salvific repentance. And we're going to define 
uh, what I believe are the two views that fall way short of the biblical standard, and then we're going to see the correct one, which would be the biblical standard. So some, cir some circles argue that a desire to turn away from sin is enough to be, considered, uh, to be considered repentant or for the act to be considered repentance. For example, a man or woman who struggles with pornography would only have to be willing to turn away from pornography, but they shouldn't necessarily have to turn away from it in order to be truly repentant. That is to say, the repentance could be genuine even if the pornography consumption continues. I don't even need to see to say why and how this is wrong. It suffices to say that such a view is defined by the word hypocrisy. If one truly wants something, if you truly want to turn away from something, if the desire is in your mind and your heart, that something will be sought and achieved over over and against the previous desire. If that doesn't happen, then the previous desire is still ruler and master of the individual. And that only proves that repentance has not happened. Adherence to this view can also be recognized by the motto, Jesus is my Savior, but not my Lord. This is the opposite of what is known as Lordship Salvation. The other post-Reformation position is centered on the word metanoia. Those who hold to this second position say that salvific repentance is only a change of mind. And this is a change of mind that doesn't require a desire to turn from one's sin. And with that, it surely follows that the willingness to turn from sin will also be absent. What suffices is admitting one's sinfulness and need of Christ for forgiveness. Turning from sin would be an unnecessary afterthought in this position. So as with the previous one, it's pointless for me to refute that. The Bible itself does so. And this, the correct biblical position, is more than enough to refute it. Repentance and faith in the Bible are two sides of the same coin. There can be no genuine faith without an equally genuine repentance, and vice versa. True repentance requires true faith. Let me provide an example from nature. This is what is known as uh, symbiotic mutationism, I think it is. We all know termites eat wood, but what most don't know is that termites by themselves cannot digest wood. They have a single-cell organism living in their gut that has the ability to break down the, cellu the cellulose of the wood, but the single-cell organism dies outside of the termite. That's a symbiotic relationship. The termite dies without the organism, and the organism cannot live without the termite. So I know it can sound like a brute example, but faith and repentance are similar. They are symbiotic. One cannot exist if the other is absent. So let's now see some quotations uh, from advocates of free grace salvation or um, the opposite of lordship salvation. Independent Baptist groups are a big antagonist of lordship salvation. You've probably heard of... Um, What's this guy's name? I forgot. Uh, Stephen Anderson. There it is. I'm sure you've heard of him. Uh, he hates Lordship Salvation. He has called publicly Paul Washer, uh, John MacArthur, Vodibachum, and other other preachers and, and theologians who are very sound. 
he has called them heretics and has has made uh, comparisons to Roman Catholics with them because because of what is known as lordship salvation that, that your repentance must actually mean something he doesn't like that so he just bashes them on YouTube uh, let's see an example of Jack Hiles it's a pretty long quote so bear with me um, he says David was saved when Jesus was not a lord of his life all of us know the tragic story of David and his sins was David saved? Yes, he was. Was Jesus Lord of his life? Of course not. Look at Psalm 51, verse 12, section A. David said, Restore unto me the joy of, of my salvation. He did not say, Restore unto me thy salvation. He was saved, but he was away from God. Jesus was not Lord of his life. If Lordship salvation were true, then David lost his salvation when he ceased to make Jesus Lord of his life. Close quote. So, it bears to say that that particular writer refers to obedient repentance, or lordship salvation if you want to call it. What's interesting here is that in another section of the same article that I saw by Jack Hiles, he summoned the curse from Galatians 1 on the Lordship view. So, and he literally referred to it as another gospel. But anyway, let, let's see that. Let's see another, another quote from the same author so you can get a better grasp of the holes in this line of argumentation. So this one is taken from Genesis 6 verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the author continues. With Genesis 9, verses 20 to 24, And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and he was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brethren without. What a weird translation. I'm sorry. Uh, and Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders, and went backwards and covered the, the nakedness of, of their father. And, the, and their faces were backwards, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his younger son had done unto him. Was Noah saved? Yes. Genesis 6, 8 says, He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we know that salvation is by grace. Was Jesus Lord of his life? In Genesis 9, 21, we find that he got drunk, and that he was naked inside his tent. In verse 22, his son saw his nakedness. Obviously, from verse 24, his younger son had done something to him. Perhaps this was a homosexual act committed with his own father while his father was drunk. To say the least, Noah was anything but a Christian who had allowed Jesus to be Lord of his life. Was he saved? Yes, he was. Was Jesus Lord of his life? No, he was not. Close quote. Did you catch something very important there? Noah was anything but a Christian who had allowed Jesus to be Lord of his life. That is the main problem with this view. That is its kryptonite. No one allows Jesus to be Lord of anyone's life. Would you imagine a pleb in an, in an ancient kingdom just going on onto, onto the king's throne and telling him, Oh, king, I allow you to do this in my life. He would have been decapitated in a second or tortured, most likely. 
Now who dares to say to the king of the earth and everything that is in it that, that he allows Jesus to do something or to be Lord of his life? That's the issue with this position. You don't allow Jesus anything. He either is Lord of your life, which means you're saved. And if he isn't, then you are Lord of your own life. And if you are Lord of your own life, you're not saved. So before we finish, let me give you a last one by author Bob Wilkin. And I quote, um, Remember Paul's words in Galatians 1, 6, 6 through 9, about those Judaizers who were proclaiming in the churches of Galatia what he calls a false gospel. Lordship salvation is essentially the same issue that God the Apostle Paul fired up. The Judaizers certainly preached the deity, substitutionary death, and bodily, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If they had not, they would have never received a hearing in the church of Galatia. But they preached that a man had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to make it into the kingdom. So too, Lordship salvation, Lordship salvation people today say that you must submit to Christ, turn from your sins, commit yourself to lifelong obedience, and then if you follow through and do persevere to the end, you will gain kingdom access. While that is not exactly the same message, it is cut of the same cloth. Lest anyone misunderstand me before I close, and we'll, this is Bob Wilkin, still, not me. <laughs> Lest anyone misunderstand me before I close, I will say a word about my understanding of the spiritual condition of Lordship Salvation people. I believe that some of them are born again and some of them are not. The born again ones are those who at some time in the past believed in the faith alone and Christ alone message, but then they were later misled. For example, I believe John MacArthur falls in that category. The ones not born again are those who have never never in their lives believed in Christ alone for everlasting life. Is Lordship Salvation a saving message? No, it is not. That is why it is so important that we share far and wide the promise of life. Close quote. How can it be wrong to say that we must submit to Christ and turn from our sins? Now, commit yourself to lifelong obedience. Yes, we do that. But the following, and then if you follow through and do persevere, you gain kingdom access. That is wrong. That's a wrong understanding of true repentance. That is a wrong understanding of what people like John MacArthur believe. I hope you all know that. Um, so, uh, guys, we are going to leave the... We have 36 minutes already. So the second part, I, I wanted to do everything in one in one episode, but it's best to leave it in, in two parts, and the next one will be all about uh, the biblical view of repentance and all that that implies. Thank you for listening, uh, and I, I thank Nick and everyone else to let me be a part of this awesome podcast and ministry. Uh, God bless you. Until next time. Make your plans now to join us for the G3 National Conference, September 30th through October 2nd, as we'll gather for Christian fellowship and the worship of God through song and the preached word. Our theme for the 2021 conference will be centered on biblical Christology. You can find registration details at g3men.org. Get 15% off by mentioning code G3JT. That's G3JT.